Welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakrit, rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale and Brian Dangerfield. Before getting into today's discussion, I just wanted to remind you all to hit subscribe. And if you like today's episode, then don't forget to hit the like button. So we've had some fairly big moves in fixed income markets this week. So Giles, I'll go to you first of all, because I think uh, 10 year bonds are probably around 15 basis points higher than, than where we started the week, or certainly since when we were chatting last week on, on the podcast. Um, what do you attribute to the drivers to, to those moves? So, I mean, a number of things, right? Uh, I think that fundamentally, as we've, or, no, we've been repeating and repeating on the, this podcast, I think the valuations were just, were just wrong and the markets are, are starting to catch up. Um, you know, we have been highlighting that the inflation risks are, are clearly, in our opinion, uh, they have been on the upside. And you know, we've been repeating that central banks are going to have to do more. And, and so, I mean, to answer your question in the simplest way, it was the Fed last week and uh, the, the message from there. And so that sort of sent the market scrambling to, to price more in for the Fed. And so, you know, we, you know, we, I mean, clearly every, every meeting now for, for the Fed is going to be, is going to be live. Um, you know, we think that the risks are that we could see one or more 50 basis point rate prices as well over the course of the year. And you know, we think that the markets need to push the, you know, what they th- where they think policy rates are going to get to up above 3%. Uh, and I mean, that's not that they'll get there straight away, but I mean, they, they should be seriously considering that. They're still not there, but they're, they're moving in the right direction. So, I mean, to a certain extent, now that that was the catalyst for the move, that was, and it was it was U.S. led in that sense. But you know, I think that um, you know, the the nearing of the end of uh, quantitative easing in in Europe is also a very important and significant theme. It's you know, this is something that now f- people feel uh, that they can, I think, express, and I think. To a certain extent, people are realizing that there's going to be fiscal slippage, there's going to be more bonds um, as part of that. There's also been a certain amount of pent up demand to to, to come to the market uh, by funders more generally. They're not just sovereign, but also uh, agencies and and, and corporates, because obviously over the, the early stages of um, you know, the sort of very volatile market that uh, that we were sent into because of the uh, invasion of Ukraine by by Russia, um, it, it has been more difficult for people to to access the market. And so, as things have quietened down, and we've sort of, you know, we the markets more more broadly have regained their composure, we see the supply coming back on tap. And so, people are thinking more about that. So, it's all it's a whole bunch of things all coming together at the same time. Um, no, I will just end by saying that I think that you know, we, you know, we probably had a, a decent amount of the correction that we needed to have in the short term, but I don't think that this is all done now. Well, that leads me nicely on to my next question, because listeners last week, or 
in any case, avid listeners, and before you make the joke, I'm sure there are some, <laughs> um, will know that we've been targeting uh, 0.5% in 10-year bond yields um, for a while now. And um, we had the momentous occasion this week of actually reaching that target. Uh, you promised listeners last week that you would update us on that view this week. So although you think a lot of that kind of momentum in the short term uh, has played out, uh, you obviously think this has further to go in over the longer term. So how much further can can those rates really rise? Right. I mean, of course, I have a number in mind and <laughs> I did promise that we would uh, we, we would update listeners and I I haven't had the time, unfortunately, to, to, to write the full explanation of why I think we're going to go to where we're going. I think higher is, is right, okay? And um, I think actually meaningfully higher is, um, is right. Now, another thing that we've said uh, frequently on, the, on this podcast, and I will repeat now, is that I think that the world is in a sense being remade as a result of the you know, this war and the, the pandemic. And you know, we absolutely should be considering quite dramatically different outcomes in, in markets as well as macro variables. You now we can see what's going on in inflation, of course, but and, and I think we are transitioning to quite a, you know, quite a different world, which means that I think that now, to take an incrementalist approach here and just say you know, rates should be plus or minus you know, a few tens of basis points compared to where we were before the pandemic is wrong. And I don't see why we shouldn't be talking about 100 basis points, potentially, or 200 basis points. Um, that's not to say that I think that that's necessarily what we should be targeting for this year, but I do think that this is a serious discussion that we should be having. Well, we worked out yesterday that I'd never seen 1% 10-year bond yields in my career so far. So that will be an exciting moment if we do get that. Um, all right then, Giles, I like that you've kind of dangled the fact that we might come back with a more uh, precise number when precise. you bring that up next week for <laughs> listeners. So stay tuned. Uh, with that then, I'll move over to you, Brian. I mean, Giles already went through some of the kind of Fed-led reasons for, or US-led at least, reasons for the sell-off this week. Um, is, is there more to it that, than just the Fed and, and what Giles kind of went through just then? Well, I think between what Giles had said and what um, John Navruzzi said on this podcast last week, thinking that <clears throat> excuse me, the next evolution of Fed pricing is likely to be towards greater risk of 50 basis point moves in the near term, with the Fed dot plot last week showing seven rate hikes over seven remaining meetings, including March, it was clear that the median member had a baseline of one hike per meeting for the remainder of the year. Mm -hmm. So where do you go from there naturally if the market is pricing ahead of the Fed, more hawkish than the Fed, and has been generally right in doing that, um, the next logical evolution would be to price towards additional uh, uh, risk of 50 basis points in the near term. And that's exactly what we've gotten. And now, certainly this is as much uh, an aftermath of the March FOMC meeting as it is anything. But we did also have comments from Fed Chair Powell on Monday at the NABE, where he laid out perhaps a personal view rather than just speaking for the committee, which was quite hawkish, where he was very clear that the Fed would consider 50 basis point moves if it deemed it necessary, 
one specific quote that was a big takeaway from, from certainly for me and I think for the market was he was asked whether the decision on balance sheet rundown, which looks very likely to come at the May meeting, would that preclude the Fed from acting 50 basis points at the May meeting? And he said nothing would necessarily preclude acting 50 basis points if they deemed it necessary. And so there is no roadblock. There's no technical reason why they don't think they could go 50 um, at that meeting. And so the market pricing has adjusted in that direction. And I think Powell's comments, while not necessarily new, I think really reinforce that move. The other thing to look at is that oil prices have moved back higher. And so break-evens have also moved up a little bit. You know, over the last three weeks, the oil had fallen from its dramatic heights as the market priced out the risk of an EU oil embargo ban from Russia. Now some of that risk has come back in a little bit. There's been some um, tensions around Saudi Arabia, specifically with Yemen, that's also contributed. But that you know, oil prices WTI front future is back towards $115 a barrel um, from as low as $100 a barrel just a week ago. And so um, that's probably also contributing here is that you have oil prices moving back up a bit, break-evens are a little bit higher. And so you can add that in uh, to the Fed as a potential, as a possible driver of these wider moves. And so thinking about the, you know, increasing, I guess, possibility of 50 basis point hikes at A or some of the coming meetings, where do you, where does that leave your, uh, I guess, Fed funds forecast? Do you think that this is, um, you know, we are likely to get at least one, if not more, 50 basis point hikes over the next six meetings this year? Or um, is our base case still, for, uh, you know, in line with the dots that that was 25 basis points per meeting for the rest of the year? So I should say our uh, firm view, our economist's view is still that we end up with seven 25 basis point rate hikes as a baseline. Uh, but certainly that risk feels more palpable today, even than it did last week. Um, we think the inflation numbers are probably not going to come down anytime soon. Powell echoed that same sentiment, basically saying, look, we don't think we're going to get an improvement in the inflation forecast, in the inflation picture backdrop, I should say, in the, in the near term. So certainly, if inflation is doing the driving right now, and the Fed is increasingly worried about entrenched upside risks to inflation and rising inflation expectations, both in near term and long term, um, certainly that risk feels like it's materializing in much more palpably. And the market is certainly moving in that direction. And now a core view of the U.S. rates team, John Nevruzzi talked about it last week, August Fed funds contract short, that position was partially because of the expectation that 50 basis point rate hikes were likely going to rise over the course of the year. And so we certainly keep to that view. Um, whether or not they deliver a 50 basis point rate hike is probably going to depend on critically on the inflation numbers. If those numbers stay high, that risk is probably going to remain high. Uh, and so to echo what Giles said, we're in just a different environment. The pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have changed the game. Uh, they've changed the environment for rates markets. Uh, and you know that, that certainly plays over to the U.S. and for the Fed as well. So when thinking about 50 basis points, then whether we get you know, one or, or more than one over the next couple of meetings. Is that just about more front loading of tightening? Or do you think that that's, um, you know, markets will need to raise where they see the terminal rate? Does that just bring forward a hike that we might have had next year, for example? Or is this genuinely more tightening coming faster? Well, if you look at where the market is, the market clearly thinks it's we're front loading the rate hikes because we actually have rate cuts priced in, I believe, into 2023 and 2024. 
So the market clearly sees this as pulling forward rate hikes into 2022 and 23, and then having to pay that back later by increasing the odds that the Fed actually starts cutting rates later. And one thing that was mentioned in the podcast earlier, uh, this is all really a question of where does the cycle end? Where is the terminal rate? Does the cycle end below where the Fed thinks the neutral long run rate is, or does it extend higher? We think it can extend higher. And if the economy continues to stay strong, the market's probably going to have to reassess, you know, how far can we go before we start pricing in uh, rate cuts? And so I still think that you can price in more and that more hikes overall in the cycle can be priced. But, you know, that might be a 2022, 2023 story. And the market may still feel very comfortable thinking that if we're having multiple 50s as a baseline in the US, for example, then certainly you could see that priced as cuts later down the road. Even if, even if the market's ultimately wrong in that assessment, I think that kind of market mentality can continue. This sort of policy error type front loading type pricing, I think, can continue, even if we think it's not necessarily the right move. I think the market can continue to run and they're not going to be proven wrong anytime soon um, on that. The question over whether or not the Fed is making a mistake over tightening, tightening too fast, those questions are going to remain very relevant um, well throughout the year. And so do we think that move might be wrong? Perhaps it is. But fading that at this point is, you know, is something that feels really difficult to do with confidence. Yeah, it certainly feels like a theme that we're going to be returning to uh, probably frequently on this podcast. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Brian. So I suppose we should switch over to the UK then, where the focus this week has been much more about the fiscal side of things uh, than the monetary side of things. So with that, I'll hand over to you, Giles. To you. Um, I, I mean, we started off with uh, with the CPI, which you know, I don't know if you, you know, want to talk about really, because it was more or less as expected. Uh, and I just say very high, but obviously the main business of the day was this this guilt remit around the well and the and the spring statement from from the chancellor, um, and so perhaps you'd like to just give us your view of of that. Um, I know we got less guilt than you were expecting. <laughs> yeah, of course. I guess. Um, well, I guess the headline takeaways for us is that the kind of borrowing numbers were. Uh, you know, net borrowing is in line with what we were expecting, but the actual guilt issuance number um, was lower by around 30 billion. And and that was driven by, um, A, the fact that there was a bigger undershoot in borrowing last year than than we had penciled in. Um, That accounted for most of the difference, actually. Uh, And then the second part was that there was slightly more um, treasury bill issuance um, that the DMO planned to do in the year ahead than we had penciled in. So to put some numbers on that, we'd initially thought the guilt issuance for the year ahead would come in around 158. Uh, It's actually going to be about 125 billion. Um, And for gilts, that represents um, a step down in issuance, um, like I say, bigger than we were expecting. But gilt issuance last year was about 195 billion. Um, So a, a sizable step down. Indeed. So, yeah, I mean, fa- famously obs- supply obsessed market, the, the guilt market. Um, on, the, on the linker side, very quickly, um, no, how did that, how, how, how did the allocation to linkers fit with what you were thinking and what have they said about that? Yeah, so I guess the composition was broadly in line, well, 
on the conventional side, broadly in line with what we're expecting, we got, um, like I said, slightly more bills, slightly more shorts, and most of that was kind of to the detriment of mediums. Um, effect, probably bigger than expected, to be fair, cuts in uh, medium-term issuance. On the linker side, um, they totaled or will total around 15% of issuance next year, which um, was roughly in, in line with our expectations. But I guess the more important um, story when it comes to linkers is that for the last couple of years, the DMO has been aiming to cut year on year its proportion of linkers um, as a proportion of, of the um, total issuance. But actually this year in uh, the DMO's report, they said that they're now happy with, um, I guess, the, the proportion of linkers as of their total issuance, and they won't be looking to cut that number year on year going forward. So um, it's around, it, it'll be 14.9 in, in this spring statement, and I imagine that, that they would look to keep that roughly stable for, for the next couple of years. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose maybe that would surprise some people just because obviously with high inflation, there might have been more upward pressure on the total stock of, uh, of linkers within that debt portfolio, but uh, apparently not. So I guess the, the big question then is how this leaves us strategically. I mean, is this um, is this bullish for gilts and negative for linkers or, or what is it? No, um, well, I guess the the very near term is that it, it you know it's supportive for gilts. That number that kind of gross issuance number is lower than markets were expecting. There was a big range of estimates, but I think we were fairly close to the kind of middle of that range, um, and so that is you know lower than I think consensus would have sat at. So the very near term reaction is that this is supportive for gilts. But going back to everything that that you and Brian have been saying about this being a kind of different world than pre pandemic, you know we've got this kind of global inflation shock, um, you know, we, we think that guilt should fully participate in this globally rising rate environment. So um, we still have a 10 year guilt target of 185. And I don't think today should derail that significantly, largely because although it is less guilt than we were expecting as a kind of headline number, if you look at supply to the market or supply that the market is left to absorb once you take away Bank of England purchases, you know, the number of gilts or the amount of gilts left for the market this year will, will be still significantly bigger than it was last year because we have that changing dynamic um, of Bank of England purchases. Um, we haven't assumed a, or rather sales this, this year. <laughs> uh, we haven't assumed a huge amount of active selling from the Bank of England. I think we might have discussed it last week, but we've just penciled in around 10 billion of, of active selling this year, which probably occurs in the second half of the year. Um, and there's a 9 billion kind of natural runoff of the portfolio that they won't be reinvesting. Um, but net... Um, you know, guilt supply net of Bank of England purchases will be uh, positive this year and, and much bigger than it was last year. I think the change versus last year is roughly around 80 billion um, sterling. And that is the, the biggest kind of year on year change that, that we've seen since 2017. So um, although the kind of very near term supply announcement today is supportive for gilts, I don't think it detracts from the kind of bearish pressures overall that, that this changing supply picture offers. So more, more bonds, it's um, a global story really, isn't it? So um, I'm very excited now because having ended this way, 
I sort of feel like I'm the one that should be telling you to hit the like button. And uh, <laughs> we look forward to talking to you next year and uh, next week. But um, Imogen, I think you better do that. <laughs> oh, now could have been your chance. Um, now you're throwing me off. I've forgotten what I'm saying. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> A reminder to our listeners that if they like today's episode, they should hit the like button. And don't forget to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. 